Welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center. In this series of podcasts, we'll be talking all things mass violence, what it is, how to prepare for it, what happens to individuals and communities affected by mass violence, recovering from the psychological effects of mass violence, and more. Today, we're going to be talking about what happens after a mass violence event, after the danger is over and communities have to respond. And uh, with me today is Dr. Ben Saunders, who is the NMVVRC's Associate Director. Hello, Ben. Hey, Dan. How you doing? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. Um, so there are some aspects of responding to violence that are pretty predictable, like finding and prosecuting the perpetrators, memorializing the victims, figuring out how the community might be able to resume fairly normal day-to-day functioning and so forth. But there are some other less expected aspects in the aftermath of violence, too. Um, Ben, what are some of those issues that communities don't really expect when it comes to responding to a mass violence incident? You know, that's that's really an important issue because... um because there have been so many mass violence events, uh, particularly in the United States, um, community, communities have begun to take a look at how can we prepare? How can our community become more prepared for a mass violence event? And as you just mentioned, there's many things that we know about mass violence events that allow communities to prepare for that. And some of these are pretty obvious and pretty well thought out at this point. One thing that we have experienced, though, at the at the National uh, Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center is that there are many things that happen, or, or at least some things that happen, um, that are quite unexpected and sort of not intuitive, that you really wouldn't think, gee, that's something we have to prepare for. So, for example, um, this is actually a good thing. Um, one thing that often happens is when there's a mass violence event, it gets a lot of publicity that really goes all over the world. And what happens is from all over the world, the community gets uh, offers of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to help. When they hear something terrible like this has happened, they want to help. Um, and so folks, you will communities will literally get thousands of uh, emails and uh, regular mails and on social media and telephone calls and all kinds of other things. Donated offering, stuffed animals. Donated stuffed animals. Uh, really, by the thousands, mm-hmm. really, um, offering some form of, of help from other communities, from organizations, from other government uh, entities, from uh, centers or universities, from experts in um, mass violence events, and, and just ordinary citizens. And oftentimes, these offers can be incredibly overwhelming Yeah, I was just folks. thinking, I mean, what, who, who in a community um, is responsible for that? Well, that's a great question because oftentimes they will go to different entities within a community. So, for example, here in Charleston, when um, the Emanuel uh, shooting happened, the Mother Emanuel shooting happened, there were offers of help to the city of Charleston, to the county of Charleston, to the Mother Emanuel Church itself, to individual victims, mm. um, to basically anybody that was remotely connected. 
Uh, I myself got phone calls from friends and, and other folks, mm-hmm. colleagues from around the country and around the world offering condolences and saying, is there anything we can do to help? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very nice. It's very nice to know that other communities are attentive to what happened here They know, and they want to offer their sympathy and they want to offer whatever they can do to help. Mm-hmm. The, the problem comes in with how do we manage this? Mm-hmm. Because what we have seen, at least in some communities, is that these offers of help can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. We really don't know what to do. How, how, how do we answer these mm-hmm. people? Number one, there's so many of them. Do we answer them all or we just ignore them? How do we go about managing these, these types of things? So simply examining and responding to these offers can take a substantial amount of time. Uh, from somebody. Mm-hmm. And and that can actually hinder the response okay. to the mass violence event. So the question is, um, how do we go about managing these things? Um, uh, how do we know whether these offers are genuine? How do we know whether they um, might potentially be helpful? Mm-hmm. How do we know whether they really, they're genuine, but they're really not going to be all mm-hmm. that helpful to our particular situation? What do we need to do in that situation? Do you think it's important to try and centralize some of that? I mean, I could see uh, easily foresee a situation where one member of the community was contacted by someone offering, I don't know, uh, treatment services or something like that and said, yes, sure, we want that. And then another agency in the community was contacted by somebody else and said, yes. And then you've got sort of two quasi-officially invited therapy provider groups coming in or something like that. And if, if you're a, an affected member of the community, uh, how, do you, how do you pick or, I mean, is there conflict there? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the problem, particularly when the offers of help may be somewhat conflictual. Mm-hmm. They, they may not go together very well. Gotcha. Um, and you have one community uh, entity going, uh, gee, yes, that, that would be great. And you have another community organization picking something or involved that's in something opposite, that's yeah. that's very different mm-hmm. and, and in some ways conflictual. So um, I guess our advice at this point is that collaboration is the key. Um, mass violence events affect everybody in a community mm-hmm. to one degree or another. Uh, whether you are part of the event, whether you're a family member of the event, whether you're simply a citizen of that community, whether you're an elected official, whether you're a community service agency, it affects everybody in that town. And and one thing that we do know that the more that all of those uh, folks can collaborate with one another and develop plans for response, the more effective those plans are going to be. And that is true with this right here. So some communities have, in fact, set up a central point of contact uh, for offers of help. Um, And so all the offers of help are directed to that central point of contact. There is some process set up for vetting those and determining whether the people offering the help actually know what they're talking about or not and could be helpful in our situation, or perhaps they don't and, and it would not be helpful. Um, and then there is uh, some, some process by which 
that that particular service or that particular offer of help is then tapped into or uh, kind of a thank you, but we're we're really not in a position to use that right right now. So we think that that some way of collaboration, whether it be a central point of contact or at the very least communication about these offers of help between the affected agencies, so that we don't get these discrepant responses and these um, con- potentially conflictual types of of services and other kind of things coming into a community um, because they were invited by one group but nobody else knew about it, that type of thing. So we would suggest uh, collaboration, establishing some way of vetting these particular offers of help that may be a single point of contact, but I'm sure there's other models that could be used as well. Um, and, and then deciding as a collective community, which ones are we, we going to do? And some communities have done this very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then others have, had, have struggled mm-hmm. more, and it has, has been a problem. Okay. All that sort of talk about collaborative, and, and I mentioned the, the sort of multiple offers from, from treatment providers, uh, made me think of you know, sort of the, the joke that folks in our profession have talked about, you know, the, sort of the grief counselor phenomenon, that after something bad happens, um, you can be inundated with offers from professionals, sort of well-meaning folks who uh, contact uh, affected individuals to let them know about this cool, awesome service for solving all their problems. Um, And if you buy my services, I will come to your town and uh, heal everybody, or, or at least do my best to, to heal everybody. Is is this kind of a related phenomenon? Exactly. Um, this is this is kind of another thing that kind of happens. Is um, believe it or not, there is a small cottage industry around mass violence events. There are. Uh, centers and companies and and individual practitioners and individual professionals um, who uh, will come in and will offer uh, services mm-hmm. to a, a community. They could be anything. Uh, it could be consultation. Um, we will come in and we will help guide you through this difficult period in your community's life. It could be training. Uh, it might be training for mental health professionals to respond. It might be training for law enforcement. It might be training for virtually anybody mm-hmm. that might be involved in these types of things. They may be uh, uh, seeking to to sell interventions or programs, um, psychological treatments, uh, training. Um, There there can even be products. Mm -hmm. For example, um, oftentimes we'll see, uh, for example, in the the, um, case of school shootings, there are companies that have products that schools can use to uh, essentially try to make the school bulletproof, uh, bulletproof doors, bulletproof windows, and they will wow. come into a community and try to sell uh, these products to uh, school systems uh, in some way. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that these people are or these are not scam artists. Mm-hmm. These are le- oftentimes legitimate folks with legitimate expertise, legitimate things that may be helpful to somebody. But 
the problem is still the same. The problem is if you're a community, you're totally unprepared for this, you have no idea how to tell who is legitimate, who isn't, uh, even if they are legitimate, will this particular training or this particular consultation be helpful to our community or it really is just not applicable to us in any way? Um, so the, the, the problems are still the same because it can hinder response because people get flummoxed about right. how to respond to these types of things. So what are the things that communities or agencies should be asking about these products and services that uh, get get uh, offered to them? Well, the first thing is, as with the offers of help, there needs to be a collaborative response to this, some way of receiving these, uh, these offers from these purveyors of, of these various services. Um, vetting them and then determining whether they might be useful to us. So a question would be, of course, is is the purveyor legitimate? Mm -hmm. um, if it's a, a single person offering consultation services or if it's a large company mm -hmm. offering products, is this a legitimate company? Um, are they in the same way that we would buy anything uh, essentially off of the internet? Um, do we, is this a legitimate kind of person? How can we do background types of things and investigate other folks that have used their services to determine whether or not so, they so one are thing legitimate? Would be like looking them up and checking references, see if they've provided these services to other communities, have those communities benefited like them and so forth. Exactly. And I can tell you that um, uh, some folks may exaggerate their expertise and experience. That's impossible. Um, <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. And, and even legitimate companies mm -hmm. obviously are trying to sell a product and they may overstate mm -hmm. the utility of the product uh, or the service in that particular situation. So there needs to be some way of determining whether the, the offerer, the purveyor of these is legitimate. Secondly, we need to figure out whether or not the service being offered itself is legitimate. Mm -hmm. So you can have a legitimate company, but they are offering a service or an intervention or a product that really there's no evidence that's helpful at all. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in our world of psychological treatment, uh, people may be offering a treatment that has not been scientifically tested, mm -hmm. for example. It's not evidence-based. Mm -hmm. it, it, we really don't know whether it works or not. Mm -hmm. um, they will have all sorts of anecdotal evidence that, yes, this has been helpful and people love it and they like it and all that kind of so thing. Testimonial kinds of things? Testimonials and this sort of deal, but they really don't have the necessary scientific evidence that it actually helps somebody. And one thing that people don't really understand oftentimes, particularly about counseling kind of things, is people can love counseling. They can love what they are receiving. That doesn't necessarily mean they get better. Right. Sort of the difference between um, being satisfied with something and actually improving after exactly. something. Okay. You're listening to MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast. I'm Dan Smith, and we're talking today with Dr. Ben Saunders about unexpected community challenges following mass violence. So, so, so far, most of the things you've talked about are commercial, but pretty much above board in terms of they're actually wanting to help victims. Um, but you also referenced scam artists. Um, is, 
Is that a problem that communities need to be on the lookout for as well? Unfortunately, yes. Okay. Um, and it is it's just um, amazing uh, the, how low human nature can go um, in the sense of the, the absolute probably worst thing that ever happened in a, in a large number of people's lives with a mass violence event. And yet there's always somebody trying to make a buck, uh, sometimes illegally, but certainly unethically, um, out of the deal. Um, and so they perpetrate a variety of frauds and scams. Like, like what kinds of things have you been made aware of? So probably the most common one is the fake donation appeal. Okay. Um, so obviously, we, we, we've already talked about that, that people want to help. Mm -hmm. People across the world oftentimes want to help. And what better way to help than sending donations uh, to, and obviously folks want to send a donation to a legitimate source that will be helpful to the victims involved in the mass violence event. Scammers know this. So scammers take advantage of the good-hearted, the good nature, the, the wanting to help nature of, of the community, and they will set up fake uh, appeals. Um, these appeals can come by phone, they can come by email, they can come by social media, they can come by, um, you know, any form of mm -hmm. communication that you can, you can think of. They may be asking people to donate for victims' uh, health care costs. Uh, they may be asking to donate because victims need housing or they need transportation or they need clothing. Uh, they need help with their college, their kids' college costs. They need employment and virtually any other emotion-triggering kind of idea. Gotcha. Um, and, of course, people hear this and they think, gee, this – the, of course, I want to help. Right. They're just appealing to the good nature of the public. Yes, and 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 they'll make these donations, and um, oftentimes uh, they, uh, unfortunately, some of these are scams and frauds. So, what should the public do, um, or are there things that communities can do to limit the effectiveness of scam artists? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's really a couple of things that we can do to think about this. First of all, to widely disseminate uh, information to victims, to survivors, and to the public uh, about the true needs of victims, what victims really need uh, help with, legitimate fundraising vehicles that have been set up. Virtually every community sets up a set of funds that are in fact legitimate that will be used to help victims and others in need of help after a mass mm -hmm. violence event. Mm -hmm. uh, these need to be hot, widely publicized mm -hmm. uh, so that people can take advantage of them and, and, and send their donations there. And then also issuing some cautions mm -hmm. about possible uh, scams so that people know they don't just automatic they they automatically know to kind of have their antenna up a little mm -hmm. bit and this if this is not one of the sanctioned legitimate uh, vehicles for making a donation you may want to investigate a little further about Find what this is, is all yeah. about okay. so one thing that that we we have seen um, uh, for example is people setting up fake GoFundMe accounts. Okay. 
And the company, the GoFundMe company, is well aware of this, mm-hmm. and they um, actually have done heroic efforts to try to identify these fake accounts and shut them down uh, to keep that from being a vehicle. But but it's still, you know, it's just hard to get to sure. everything. So again, uh, widely disseminate that, and then of course report any fraudulent activity to law enforcement that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's if, if it is an online company, is something that's propagated through Facebook or any of the other mm-hmm. social media outlets, to let that co- that company know okay. that this is fake, um, and that they need to do something like that. So, being cautious, uh, utilizing the legitimate vehicles, donation vehicles that are set up, reporting the fraudulent activity you see, and then for public officials, really widely disseminating this information about ways of making appropriate donations. Gotcha. This is the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, brought to you by the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center, and we're talking community preparation with Dr. Ben Saunders. Okay. So so that's, that's really good stuff about what to do with respect to sort of the fake and scammy kinds of things that go on. But what about um, sort of other kinds of solicitation, maybe solicitation for genuine, legit expenses, but um, maybe seeking funds in a direction that they're not actually needed, which which might be surprising to some folks that um, not every single need of a, a, a violence-affected community needs to be solved by, by the public. Um, what, what kinds of issues have you seen in that regard? Um, the, good, the good news is that every state in the United States has uh, a victim services program that includes um, funding for a wide variety of victim services, That includes things like victims' compensation funds, which will provide compensation to victims of violent crime for um, uh, legitimate, appropriate uh, costs related to their victimization. And these are kind of standard programs, and they're available in every state in in the United States. When there is a mass violence event, oftentimes the federal government, through the Office of Victims of Crime, um, will be able to provide additional supplementary funds uh, so that um, the, the standard uh, funds within a state are not overwhelmed gotcha. by this and so that people that are, have other kinds of victimization experiences are not deprived of the help they need because of this mass violence event. So one of the things that we see, for example, um, is that uh, people will solicit funds for burial costs. Right. Uh, and a lot kind of those. And yeah. when you think about it, that, okay. Sounds that very legitimate to me. We certainly don't want victims burdened, victim family members burdened by the burial costs of, of their family member that has been a victim in a, in a mass violence event. Uh, the good news is that victims' compensation will already cover that. Okay. So that sort of cost, we already have programs in place that will cover those types of things. We don't really need external donations to, to kind of help with that. Uh, similarly, psychological treatment is 
typically covered in, by victims' compensation. Uh, there also may be other kind of standard programs within the community that are covered that uh, where these costs will already be, be paid for. Gotcha. Now, there may be legitimate needs mm-hmm. that are not covered mm-hmm. by these. And, and so that's why a, a central standardized approach to uh, donations is so important because uh, the public officials will know how to best use the, that money uh, in, in the, where it's really needed, not for things that are already covered by other programs. Cool. Um, one of the more interesting and, and perhaps even shocking aspects about the aftermath of mass violence is the presence or uh, appearance, sort of out of the woodwork, uh, it seems, of conspiracy theorists or event deniers, you know, people who say, nope, this actually didn't happen. Uh, It's all made up. And we've certainly seen these notably after the Sandy Hook and to some extent the Sutherland Springs shootings uh, and some others. what is what is this phenomenon about? Uh, what, what what is what is going on? <laughs> I would with love these to know what yeah. it's about. Yeah. Um, wow, this has really been um, something. This has probably been the most shocking thing that I have seen in in a just being around mass violence mm-hmm. incidents. Uh, simply because it at least it is so completely I, I just can't understand it yeah there's a, there's such an element of cruelty to it. it 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 defies anything that is good about human nature mm-hmm. to me um, and it it also speaks to how incredibly delusional some people can mm-hmm. get even people that do not have major mental illnesses mm-hmm. um, but what this is about is a mass violence event will occur. And, and I think where we have seen this most is when they have occurred in a fairly limited setting where there are not um, – there oftentimes is not video evidence of, of, the, of the crime, though in some cases there has been video mm-hmm. evidence of that. Um, and it may be uh, – limited to a particular space so a church shooting a uh, shooting in a uh, shootings in the in a school uh, shootings within a particular workplace um, as opposed to say uh, something like Las Vegas which was uh, a shooting in an open air Mm -hmm. concert where literally Tens of thousands of people were at at the location, and, and there were videos. Say, and everybody whipped out their phone and and started and recording the hysteria. Exactly. Yeah. And what it is is there's different groups of people. I'm not sure that there's a consistent group, but um, have come to believe that these particular incidents are not true. That these particular incidents are um, exercises being conducted by uh, the Homeland Security Department, for example, uh, in an effort to uh, scare the public and facilitate uh, laws that will take away the rights of uh, citizens. I see. Um, and and they oftentimes come in and they will they they view these things simply as theater. They think they were simply a put on deal like a show a show and that quote crisis actors were used to uh be 
part of any film or any any video that might be available or any interviews that were conducted afterwards or to be labeled as the victims and this kind of thing. They oftentimes will deny that these victims ever existed. They're not even real people. They will certainly deny that the incident was real. They will deny that there were any deaths. And they will condemn all those involved uh, in the incident as, quote, cooperating with the government to take away our rights. Wow. So what kind of behaviors do these folks engage in that um, make it so problematic for victims and communities? Well, let me give you an example. So here's an example of uh, two of these crises, of these deniers or whatever we want to call them, conspiracy theorists, um, talking to the pastor of the uh, Sullivan Springs Baptist Church where 26 people were murdered, including the pastor's daughter, I might add. The pastor was not at the shooting because he had another engagement that week and had a substitute pastor, but his daughter and wife were there and his daughter was killed. Here's what these people said to him. This is supposed to be a man of God, but yet he's told the whole world that 26 people died in his church when he's no, he, nobody died. He's a liar. Let's go, Frank. Let's go polygraph right now. I've got a man in San Antonio. The comment you just made, knowing my 14-year-old daughter's laying You're a liar, Frank. You're a filthy liar, Frank. You know? You're a demon, Frank. You should be able to provide the evidence more than anybody on this planet. This guy should be able to provide evidence right of a death that happened at this church. So that's the kind of thing that they say. Uh, these folks, it, it is, they will berate people. They will harass people. They will call people up on the telephone and condemn them for being crisis actors and cooperating with the government just out of the blue. So somebody's a victim's at home. The phone rings. They answer the phone. It's one of these people telling them that they're... A uh, loved one did not die, that their loved one never existed, that they are, that they are the most terrible people in the world for uh, cooperating with the government. Why, don't, why do they keep doing this? It, it is stunning. It is stunningly cruel the way this works. Um, so I think this is something that most communities are not prepared for. I was going to say, and, and so how does a community prepare for that? Is there some sort of inoculation that can be done? Uh, uh, just sort of, hey, everyone, I know you're dealing with a lot right now, what with all the mass violence that we just experienced, but hey, be aware of this too. Is, is that something that is a best practice or do we even know what a best practice is for something like this? You know, I, I, I think at this point, we, we, we just have the experience of what some other communities have done. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that we are prepared to say this, this is the way to, to manage that. Okay. But I think there are some lessons that have been learned. Uh, first of all, I think just knowing about it. Right. And I don't think the, necessarily that this is information that, need, that needs to be the first thing that is broadcast out mm -hmm. to the community or the public. Right. Uh, because we don't know whether this is actually going to happen. This doesn't happen in every mass violence event. Okay, uh, happens in a select few. How they get picked, quite honestly, I don't know. So, but I do think that public officials need to be aware of this, and professionals that are about the business of 
preparing their community, they need to be aware of this. I'm not sure this is something that we need to immediately broadcast out to the public and, and that type of thing until it happens. Um, the main thing here is for folks to understand that people often are, the, the first response is often call law enforcement. Say, and there's certainly nothing wrong with the that. Police, yeah. But law enforcement is going to be somewhat hampered uh, because we have the First Amendment in, in the United States. So it's not a crime to call someone up and be cruel to them. It really, as far as I can tell, unless you're making threats, specific threats, uh, unless you are threatening some sort of terroristic act, unless you are making something, some kind of threat that is um, plausible, uh, simply calling somebody up and saying you're a bad person for cooperating with the government in this sort of delusional way that people do it uh, doesn't appear to be a crime. What about stalking or harassment kind of crimes? Right? So there, there may be things, but I can tell you that most communities, law enforcement is reasonably limited about what it can do because just the way the laws are. Gotcha. So what, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Well, if these folks do show up, uh, number one, hopefully uh, community officials, um, elected officials, um, people providing community services would already be aware that this is a possibility and would be prepared to support and aid victims uh, in, in, as they try to manage these particular folks. Um, if laws are broken, law enforcement should absolutely get involved. So, for example, there may be situations uh, like stalking or something like that, that, stalking laws that can be brought to bear. Um, some of these people may be trespassing uh, on property that they're not allowed to trespass on. Uh, that can be something that law enforcement can help with. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, how to manage this is, is a little bit of a dilemma because oftentimes these people are looking for publicity. Mm -hmm. So when Channel 2 shows up uh, and starts filming these it's people, a win for them. it's a win mm -hmm. for them. Uh, so this may be something that, that the community needs to think about. Uh, to what degree do we want to publicize this behavior and reinforce this behavior? Um, so I think offering the main thing that we can do is involve law enforcement when we can, make sure your community officials know about this possibility, make sure that uh, folks that are providing emotional and physical support to victims know about this possibility, um, uh, working with your news media about how are they going to cover this uh, in a way that will be helpful to victims, not and not necessarily giving them the publicity that they they desire and want. Although, quite frankly, a lot of these people bring their own cameras. Mm -hmm. They're bringing their own cameras and they're posting it on the internet. Um, uh, so, you know, the mainstream media may not be even something that they even that, care yeah. Yeah. Uh, care about. Okay. Uh, so at this point, it's more information and emotional support. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Ben. That's uh, great information. And uh, just for folks out there, uh, we've actually memorialized a lot of the information that Dr. Saunders has talked about into a tip sheet for communities to uh, 
how to expect unexpected challenges in responding to mass violence, and, and that can be downloaded from the National Mass Violence and Victimization Resource Center's website, which is www.nmvvrc.org. Um, hey, Ben, thank you. Uh, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Mass Violence Podcast. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ben Saunders, for his insight about the unexpected challenges that communities face after mass violence and how to prepare for them. In future editions of the MVP, we'll be talking with people affected by violence, with community leaders, and experts about topics related to readiness, response, and resilience to mass violence. And thanks for listening. Thank you.